0: From Red Kite Prayer, I'm Patrick Brady with The Pull. Great bike races come in two flavors. The first happens when the victor is so superior to the rest of his competition that the route takes on mythic proportions and goes down in history as a man-made force majeure. Think Eddie Merckx at the 1969 Tour de France. No other winner in the modern era of the Tour de France so dominated his competition as Merckx did that year. The other flavor of great bike race happens when the competition is so evenly matched that you are held breathless until the final finish line. Eddie Plankert's one-centimeter victory over Steve Bauer at the 1990 Paris-Roubaix is arguably the greatest example among one-day races. But in the Grand Tours, there is one that stands above all others for down-to-the-wire drama and that is Greg LeMond's eight-second triumph over Laurent Fignon at the 1989 Tour de France. Fignon was in sight of the final stage's finish line at the point those fateful eight seconds began to tick by. In a way, Both men triumphed that day. With his second-place finish coming on the heels of his win at the Giro d'Italia, Fignon demonstrated that his return to form was complete and he would be a man to watch for the rest of the season. For Le Mans, this was more than just a comeback. It was redemption itself. My guest for this week's show is writer Daniel de Vizet. He has taken on this Battle of the Titans and more in a new book called The Comeback. Greg LeMond, the true king of American cycling, and a legendary Tour de France. De Vizet is a journalist of the classic mold. He cut his teeth working at the Miami Herald, where he was part of a team of reporters who won a Pulitzer Prize for their coverage of the battle over Elion Gonzalez. Later, he worked for the Washington Post. His first book grew out of a story he wrote about a woman with complete retrograde amnesia, something that almost never happens, despite how often it does turn up in TV shows. His second concerned Don Knotts and Andy Griffith and their on-screen as well as off-screen friendship. Considering those volumes, one could be forgiven their surprise at his decision to write a book about a bike race. Well, Daniel Davis A., welcome to the poll. How are you doing?
1: I am well, and thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Now you're in the midst of a book tour, uh, for your book, The Comeback. Uh, are you, are we speaking from a hotel? Are you home currently?
1: Yeah, I'm home, although not for much longer. Uh, we leave tomorrow for Sacramento and then I'll be knocking around California for the next 10 or 11 days, uh, doing book talks nearly every day. And then I come back from that to the DC area where, where I live. And then I'll be back, um, on the West coast again in August, uh, all told, I'm doing, gosh, I think 20, 21, 22 book talks, um, each one hosted by a cycling club and or a bookstore. Um, and so far, they've they've gone great. They've been really groovy and I've got great audiences asking great questions. People like Ron Kiefel have, have showed up and it's been terrific.
0: That's that's really cool. When I heard that Kiefel w- turned out for you, that's that's just really terrific. Yeah, that must be gratifying for you.
1: Oh, yeah. I I interviewed him for the book. I was very grateful for the chance. And I invited him. I I didn't I didn't know that he'd actually show up. And I thought maybe I recognized him in the audience, but I didn't want to presume. And then at the end, he came and introduced himself to me. And um, yeah, it was just it was just great to shake his hand and make his acquaintance in person. He really helped me. And, you know, people like him populate the book, especially the first part where I go through all of Greg's and Kathy's friends from way back. A lot of them like You know, Cliff Young and Frank Kratzer. I don't know that people have heard from those guys before, you know, certainly not Mm -hmm. in a long time. So I'm very grateful to have them, their voices in this book.
0: Yeah, yeah. It really adds an extra dimension, uh, getting people who knew him way back when. Uh, That's for sure. Yeah. So, so often in the American media, um, the 89 Tour de France has been cast as a classic David versus Goliath battle. You know, you had Lemon coming back from injury and you had him on this two bit team that, you know, really couldn't fight its way out of a wet paper bag. Um, and so Lemon was cast as as the underdog David. Um, based on, you know, you talking about the book and what I've read, you don't see it that way. Um, talk about how uh, you know, your perception, even though, uh, Fignon was on, you know, this big and powerful team, uh, talk a little bit about how you see them both as, as diminished characters.
1: Right. Um, yeah, I I think you're right. Certainly after doing all the research, uh, that went into writing those three, four chapters of the book, I came away thinking that this was a very, very closely matched contest. I mean, that's why it's so great. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, look at how often the, Mayo Jean, uh, did I say that right? Uh, changed hands over the course of the three weeks. I think uh, Samuel Apt made a comment. that It must be confused. You know, we didn't know which whose shoulders it was going to be on every night. Um, and th- yes, Greg had been easily the dominant uh, cyclist in 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 '86, probably in '85 as well. Um, I think. Uh, Bernardino might have been dominant at the beginning of, of 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 those tours, but Greg certainly was dominant by their end. I, I don't think many people would dispute that. Um, and Fignon, I think maybe Greg himself underestimated him a little bit because much later, Greg would say that man was an amazing talent. In '83 and '84, he was indomitable. In '84, he just handed you know his hat. I mean, he he just <laughs> trounced him. Yeah, and. He looked over, uh, the weaker man later on after the tendon injury and the years sort of in the wilderness. But Fignon was a great, great talent. And so coming into 89, you know, at the, I think at the time when I watched it on television, you probably did, too, um, we, we, we knew he, that Fignon was the favorite that he was with this great team that looked really spectacular to watch them on TV. They looked like, you know, robots or something. <laughs> was it known as Super U or System U? I can't remember which it was at that point. They, but. They, uh,
0: I think they were still System U. <laughs> System U. The, uh, yeah.
1: But they looked like superhumans, and it was a great team. And Fignon had just won the Giro, and nobody thought Greg was going to do anything. Um, you know, but in hindsight – in hindsight, we know that they were perfectly matched, and Greg's weaker team. I, it wasn't a bad team. Uh, Johan Lammertz, um, if I'm saying his name right, kept telling me, and when I interviewed him, that no, no, there was some there was some class on that team, um, but it wasn't nearly so good of a team. Um, you know, I think it was heroic, a heroic effort that kept five of them uh, of the nine <laughs> in the race to the end. If that, if even five of them survived. But where, where Greg's weaker team really showed up was in Greg's writing style, which which Fignon kept criticizing. He was like, well, Greg is not acting like a leader. Well, he couldn't act like a leader. He didn't have a team, you know. So he was just tagging along with whoever were the strongest riders in any given day. And his teammates were not among them. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Does that all make sense? I mean, it, oh, it, it, no, it's,
0: it's it's totally the case. <laughs> I mean, the yeah. best rider on his team was Eddie Plankert, who had yet to win Perry Rebaix. You know, so, I mean, you couldn't really look to him as like, you know, oh, this guy's a badass at the classics. He's not yet a badass at the classics.
1: No. So so it was a, a, a very strong rider, much stronger than we thought with a, with a, a mediocre team, um, heroic, but, but, but middling against Fignon, who I think was just about Greg's equal, but had a much stronger team. So it, it was, it, I, yes, you're right that it was much less a David Goliath battle than we all thought it was at the time. You know, hindsight has shown that not really to be true.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Um, okay. So Lamond, there was a, uh, you know, a number of years where he was America's most beloved cyclist. And then came Lance Armstrong and the prospect of the cancer Jesus, and he dethroned LeMond as America's heartthrob cyclist. Um, Then there was the war with Trek and Armstrong, and that cost LeMond what I truly think was the best possible backer of his brand. Um, Sticking to his guns doesn't seem to have served him well in that instance, You know, during that battle, LeMond's own image was pretty badly tarnished. Um, And I'll say, you know, I wrote this on a number of occasions. At some level, I really couldn't understand why he couldn't just keep his mouth shut, given what was at stake. And I'm really curious about your impression of him and that era. How much of him speaking up, continuing to speak up, even after John Burke at Trek told him, just shut up, just shut up, please, would you just shut up? how much of him speaking up was a matter of pure principle versus this more emotional reaction at the thought of being dethroned by a cheat?
1: (laughs) Well, um, there were these talking points that I guess circulated against Greg during those years from a very powerful, you know, company he was going up against, you know, the, the team, Armstrong's team was a big, you know, very powerful, influential organization. And my, my understanding is they were trying to portray him as kind of a whiner, as somebody who was sort of jealous, sour grapes, you know, didn't want to get displaced by this other guy. Um, but I think in truth, uh, I don't think, uh, first of all, I don't think Greg did speak up all that much. I mean, he said a few very, very important, very critical, very controversial things, right? Uh, the, the, the first and foremost among them being the greatest fraud quote to David Walsh, but Greg, if he were on this call, would point out very quickly, he did very few interviews in those years. He barely talked to anyone in the press. You know, I think I think he said there were years when he did, did maybe one, two, three interviews the whole year. So it wasn't that Greg was yapping, opening his yap left and right. I think what would happen is that when he would open his yap, <laughs> he'd get into all sorts of trouble. And it only really was only a few comments, you know, spaced a year or two apart that got him into this storm, this, this windstorm of, uh, of trouble. And, and, but, but the reason why it caused so much trouble was, was who he was. Um, a New York daily news columnist made the very, very, um, smart observation that for Greg Lamont to say anything at all against Lance was kind of like Hank Aaron, you know, trashing Barry Bonds.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was baseball. It was unseemly. That's for sure. Um, I remember writing a piece in which I said, you know, I, I wish he'd just stopped talking about Armstrong because, you know, he's not actually doing anything to really tear down Armstrong, but he's harming his own reputation in the process. Uh, you know, we're, we're losing a champion and it's not the one he thinks it is. Um, so it, yeah. it, it yeah. was, it was the sort of thing that struck me as really unfortunate. Um, I mean, I remember being in the room when he sat in, uh, in the front row of Armstrong's (laughs) press conferences like, Oh my God, there's a great photo of a colleague of mine, uh, Neil Rogers, who was at Velo news at the time now editor over at cycling tips. And this, this shot of Neil sitting next to Greg, he's so uncomfortable. You can see him just wishing he could crawl (laughs) out of his skin for it. Um, and I was toward the back of the room and, you know, it was just one of those things. It's like, oh, should we go get the fire extinguishers now or wait?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, you you understand this, this whole sequence of events in a way that I probably never will, because I wasn't a reporter in the cycling press at all during those years. I'm looking back at it and trying to look at it from Greg's perspective. Mm -hmm. I think there were some things motivating him. I mean, one thing is he probably might have felt a little more at liberty to to lob some of these criticisms than, say, a member of the cycling press, you know, who has to get keep, keep access to, to Lance when it's all said and done. Um, I, I know at one point, uh, supposedly Sam Apt from the New York Times uh, told Kathy, and she said this in deposition, that he confided in her that, you know, I can't write critically about this source if I want him to still be my source, you know. Yeah. But I guess Greg felt more liberated to do that and then too um i think that he had this kind of righteous indignation that might have gone back to remember he's a survivor of sexual abuse and i think that he felt a really powerful sense that cycling kind of purified him kind of it was something he could feel good about that he could feel pure about could feel clean about and that he really took great pride in the fact i guess that he that he'd raced clean and that he'd been a natural talent and had and had and had exploited only his natural talent and nothing else. And it, it seemed like he was sort of more and more indignant at the thought that the, some of these other people in the Peloton were, were using artificial aids to, to get onto the podium, you know, and that he didn't need them. And so I think everything you're saying is right. Uh, but But it is worth repeating that I mean, I read God every article I could find that quoted LeMond in that entire twelve-year span, and there weren't that many of them. He didn't give all that many interviews. People kept seeking him out, you know, and and once in a long while he'd say something, and then he and then it would all start over again.
0: Yeah, well, and then there was the fact that if he did say something, you know, it would be quoted in fourteen papers. Oh
1: you know? uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, because he's the Hank Aaron, you know, right of of, psych, of American cycling, and and Lance was the uh, the Barry Bonds or the or the a rod or whatever
0: yeah okay well so despite that period you know lamont has now emerged as the victor um it's a victory the victory that didn't include a solid manufacturing partner for his brand so it's maybe not the win that you know some of us would like to see for him or that Mm. he probably feels he deserves um considering how his reputation was bruised in that battle how did you get interested in telling the story and what made you think that the time had come where a both a publisher and b an audience would be interested in the story. Um, you know, I'll, I'll at least give you credit for saying, I think the book's publication is remarkably well-timed. This is the time to do this book, but, um, you know what? Yeah. Where, what transpired for you?
1: Right. No, that's an excellent question. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of writing like books with capital B, I wasn't thinking in terms of obviously like a cycling book. I just wanted to come up with a really good story. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- that's what the boys in the boat in the end, that's what it is. It's a really good story that happens to be about rowing. You know, um, Seabiscuit is a really good story that happens to be about horse racing. Okay. Um, setting aside, how my writing is, uh, you know, cause I'm not going to judge my own writing. Just the story, the story at hand here is a wonderful, incredible story. You know, uh, the, the the story that Greg Lamond went through over the past oh, 50 odd years, is just a remarkable, remarkable story. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to tell it. And I'm looking at this shelf of books in front of me here, you know, Slaying the Badger came out a half dozen years ago. It's a wonderful book about the 85, 86 tour about the conflict, which, and it's a great conflict between Greg and, uh, you yep. um, and it's a fabulous read, but in, in my, in the war, in the sort of world of my book, it's just one great conflict. And then there's a bunch more, you know, ahead, uh, beyond it. Um, <laughs> I, I wanted to keep going after that. I wanted, I wanted to tell the story of the greatest tour in history, 89 at the eight second, uh, tour you know, the eight seconds that Fignon kept counting out, you know, one, two, three for the rest of his life because he was so dazed at having been beaten by eight seconds. That was the main thing I wanted to get into a book. Um, and I, I was walking around in my, in my, my neighborhood and just thought, man, this Lamont thing would make a great, it's just a great story. And then the whole conflagration with Lance Armstrong after Greg's career is over, that's another part, amazing, gripping fascinating piece of the story. So you've got yeah. just this sequence of phenomenal conflicts that come into this man's life, this man being Greg. And I know that people who are really passionate cycling fans know all this stuff, but even they haven't seen it all in one place. You know, uh, Richard Moore, who did a blurb for me, and it was very nice of him to do that, made the point that this is the first time Greg's whole fascinating, almost unbelievable story has been laid out, you know, between two hard covers.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you when you start to break it down, you know those big events of his life as as if you look at them as chapters, it's like good grief. Who would <laughs> want to ride that roller coaster?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, somebody asked me the other day whether Greg realizes how much crazy stuff has happened to him, you know, and how he's still standing. And I I never specifically asked him, hey man, Greg, do you do you realize? How 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 much of a roller coaster your life has been? I never specifically asked him that, but I should. The next time we talk, I'm gonna
0: <laughs> Well, it, it's one of those sort of vaguely unanswerable questions. It reminds me of when uh Paul McCartney talked about uh an interviewer once asking him, you know, so what's it like to be a Beatle? And he turned around and looked at the guy. I was like, I I don't know, what's it like not to be a Beatle? <laughs> You know it's all he knows, I mean, yeah. you know greg lamont's life is is greg lamont 's life to greg lamont um it's just his life uh, you know he he hasn't had any other sort of life so uh it's it's an interesting thing to contemplate for sure um so uh, this podcast um when I launched it, I told people I wanted it to be a lot about craft. And while a lot of people I interview are frame builders, I'm interested in craft beyond that. So one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you was about the craft of writing a book. You know, I know most of the world thinks that writing nonfiction is like writing fiction, that you sit down at a desk from eight to five every day for a year, and at the end of it, you have a book. Um, Now, I'm going to guess that given you already had uh, two books out, you had a good agent, So when you started working on the proposal and told your agent, um, hey, I'm working on a proposal about a book about a cyclist, what sort of reaction did you get?
1: Well, my agent, my literary agent is Deborah Grosvenor, and she discovered Tom Clancy. And that's she's and she's a great agent of kind of guy books, especially like books with amazing daring do and really gripping ups and downs in them. And I think she likes a lot of the same stuff that I like. I'm sure she's better read than I am. But when I presented it to her, I didn't necessarily present it like I'm going to do a cycling book. What I, what I said is I'm going to do a book about Greg LeMond. And, you know, I said, Deborah, you know, you really, you really prize stories that, that have lots of ups and downs in them, you know, uh, lots of uh, conflict, lots of obstacles to overcome. And I said, well, wait till you hear about this guy's life. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I spent a few minutes probably over coffee or maybe half an hour just walking her through all that had happened to him and bear in mind it's hard for you and me maybe to appreciate this but she didn't know the half of it and and most people who aren't really passionate cycling fans don't know the half of it and when I was finished telling her what all this man had been through she was she was thrilled you know I mean we we both kind of heaved sighs of sorrowful sighs over what poor Greg went through mm-hmm. but Mm-hmm. My God, the conflicts that faced him in his life. And, and it's just it's just stunning. So it's just a great story. I mean, forget that it's about cycling. It's just a, a damn good story.
0: So if I understand you correctly, you, you went out for coffee with your agent and talked your way <laughs> through before even actually writing a proposal.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know how other narrative nonfiction writers do it, but I wouldn't get past uh, – you know, a few pages worth of writing without my literary agent thinking it was a good idea because I don't want to waste her time or my own. I, um, yeah, with this book and the last one, come to think of it, and probably the one before that and my next book, actually, uh, I, I start out with something much shorter, like a pitch that might be five, six pages that you could read in 20 minutes. And if if, if I don't have your attention by then, then forget it. <laughs>
0: Okay. Okay. Um, so how long did you spend researching the proposal, uh, that ultimately went to Atlantic Monthly Press?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, gosh, this, this would be something you ought to advertise this for book writers because I'd love to share notes with, compare notes with some others on how they do this stuff. But what, you know, it is said sometimes that the proposal is like half of the battle of writing a book. I don't think <laughs> yeah. that's Necessarily true, but it's a lot of work. It's it's a it's a document that can run to 50 70 hundred pages, and can take many months to pull off. Um, you know, for those of you who have never had the g- g- good luck to have to write one, um, it's basically a lengthy kind of essay pitching the book to the publisher with a whole bunch of bells and whistles, talking about this many people ride bicycles and this many people watch the tour. And they have this kind of disposable income, and they spend this much on hats and jerseys <laughs> and frames. Um, and And then you also summarize the chapters that would be in the book. So the person has a the publisher has a real good feel for what exactly it would say. Mm-hmm. And you you often write a couple of chapters all the way through sample chapters. So that all took, I would say, gosh, three, four, five months. And I did a lot of the, the interviews that would end up populating the book, at least initial interviews, right then and there. So by the time i had finished my book proposal, which means the book wasn't even a thing yet, I'd already interviewed like Andy Hampston and Phil Anderson and probably Greg and Kathy. I can't remember if I'd spoken to them yet, but uh, Bob Lamond, the, you know, the father, a bunch of other people. I'd done dozens of interviews even before the book sold. And to anticipate your next question, um, two two publishers... uh ended up kind of bidding on it. And uh, Atlantic Monthly Press, which is to say Grove Atlantic, was the one that we went with. Um, and that's probably all I can say about that. But it was, there was a bit of a, a very modest bidding war.
0: Any bidding war is a good thing, I suppose. Any
1: bidding war is a good thing in real estate and in books.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, so based on my perusing your footnotes, it appears that you spent at least 2 years conducting interviews for the book. Um I'm curious, you know, you you say you spent several months working on the proposal once you had your agent uh interested. How how much more time did you spend researching the book overall and then writing it? And you know, uh I'm I'm guess I'm con- I'm curious about uh yeah, just the overall time commitment.
1: Yeah, well, it's a lot. I, I, you know, I, I think that if you if you divided the amount of money you get for a book by the hours you spend on it, Ooh, it's, don't do it's, that. Don't. I do won't that. do it. I won't. <laughs> yeah, it actually has You'd have to put your hands over your ears. But um, I spent an entire year writing, just write, you know, reporting and writing one chapter at a time. So if it was February, I'd be working on Greg's racing career as an amateur in California. If it was May. I was working on the Slaying the Badger era. If it was August, I was probably working on 89. If it was November, I was working on uh, the Lance Armstrong era. But it's not quite as clean as that. I think the the proposal was sold around the end of one year, which is to say I'd already written some of the book by then. And then I spent the whole next year reporting and writing it. And then I think the manuscript went to the publisher in maybe March of what would be 2017, Uh, so uh, March a year ago. After maybe fifteen, eighteen months of kind of nonstop writing, and then it's 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 a slow process, you know, it was another entire year before the book would publish. And during that year, well, you're editing, you're uh, proofreading. I proofread the entire manuscript all the way through twice, just looking for mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, you're you're doing footnotes, and I've got pages and pages and pages of endnotes. Um, gosh, there's so much that you're doing after after the book's in. And then you're also, if you're a writer, you're also thinking about what you're going to do next and planning out your book tour.
0: Right. Right. Wow. Um, so, um, <laughs> boy, where where to go with this next? Um, how often were you able to sit down with your subjects in person for the interviews versus doing stuff by either phone or email?
1: Yeah. Um, well, my, my budget, for for reasons I was kind of hinting at earlier, my budget was a little bit austere. I was trying not to spend huge amounts of money uh, in preparing the book. So where possible, like with Phil Anderson, I'm not going to go to Australia for that. You know, we talked on Skype, as I'm talking to you, a number of times. And like Andy Hampston, we talked on the phone a, a great many times. You know, I went up to New York to meet with Kent Gordas, uh, Greg's childhood friend, in person mm-hmm. But I didn't fly to Reno. I interviewed uh, Greg's father and his sisters by telephone, you know, over and over, and and followed up on by email. Uh, I I did travel and 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 met in person with Greg and Kathy every time I met with them. Um, I don't think we to this day. I don't think we've ever actually had a telephone interview. We it's all been in person. That was important to me. Mm. Uh yeah. But uh yeah, I, I I mean I did hundreds and hundreds of interviews on the phone, on the Skype, um, where possible in person, but I wasn't gonna break the bank to like you know, go to Europe and try to like track down Alain Galopan there when he was very gracious to talk to me many, many times on the telephone. You know, uh Otto, uh the uh the Swanier, uh the trainer, mm-hmm. Otto spoke to me a number of times and it was always on the telephone. You know, he was in Mexico. I, I couldn't afford to go to Mexico to talk to him. So we just talked on the phone.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, some of the magazines and newspaper articles that you found for your research draw quotes that are, you know, certainly ancient by cycling standards. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah. you know, I mean the Reader's Guide to Periodical Literature, one of my favorite locations in any library, you know, will will serve you well on newspapers and certain magazines.
1: Mainstream but, stuff. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh i e. not velo news. I mean, how oh, did you track yeah. down old copies of winning magazine?
1: <laughs> well, that's an excellent question. um i I bought a bunch of magazines from eBay uh, sellers in Britain and France, like stacks of them. Uh-huh. Um, there were some magazines, and winning is an example that are housed at the Library of Congress. and so I made a bunch of trips, and that's that's a, a short train ride for me. I made a number of trips to the Library of Congress and read and photographed or copied um, many, many issues of Winning Magazine. Um, actually, Velo News was one that I had a particularly hard time finding. I don't think there's a library within a thousand miles of here that has copies of Velo News. In the end, I wound up sort of cobbling together clippings of that, pub, of that, you know, fine publication, uh, really definitive. Uh, from their their book, uh, Bicycle Racing in the Modern Era, uh, had some of them, and I I was able to kind of beg, borrow, or steal a few more, and I have this uh, great friend Mark uh, Lennon here in D.C. who who, who lent me some uh, CDs of interviews in a- Ireland and stuff like that, and then for video, wow. for video, it's all on YouTube, which is wonderful. I mean, not every last thing, but a lot of what I needed, and you'll see in the end notes, you'll see, you know. So-and-so's YouTube page is where I would see, like, stuff from 89. Even the 82 worlds uh, where Greg and Jock Boyer have a kind of thing, the kind of a conflict, that's on YouTube. You can find it right on YouTube.
0: Yeah, it's it's remarkable. Uh, I, I still kind of reel every time I think about how the number two search engine in the entire world is YouTube. Um, you know, yeah. Like, oh, yeah, powerful stuff, huh?
1: And, and my pop and I had recorded uh, the tour – and also the race across America and Olympic stuff back in the 80s. So some of it I actually had on videotape. I mean, it was pretty scratchy. <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I have it.
0: Did you have to go to a Salvation Army to find a new VCR? That's what I had to do last year.
1: <laughs> I actually, more than once. And then I found a gizmo from China that would, that would allow you to copy off the videotape into your computer. So I did that with all this stuff. Ooh. So I was able to play it in, in a file after recording it once.
0: Oh, very cool. Uh, So your father uh, was Belgian. Uh, Sorry, he's no longer with us. Um, I am to understand a big cycling fan Um, (laughs) and not just a fan. He was reasonably accomplished in his own right. Um, Some of your source material uh, was published only in French. Um, Did you require help or by virtue of being um, uh, the son of a Belgian?
1: (laughs) Do you speak French? Oh, no, uh, un petit peu, uh, a tiny <laughs> little bit, a few words. I mean, I actually got, you know, just because of the way the human brain works. After a while, I got to where I could kind of understand what what Velo or Miral du Cyclisme, what what these articles were saying. But for the purpose of quotation and for really understanding w- what the articles contained, I did crazy stuff. Well, first of all, I had a trans- a very good translator, interpreter who, who's a native French woman, and she Uh, when I interviewed Guimard, uh, she was on the line with me, right? Um, And and translated real time, like at the United Nations. Wow! And I I think with with some other interviews, um, the same thing. Um, uh, Vince Bartho, uh, we interviewed him in French. Um, And then uh, some email interviews, uh, we would conduct them bilingually, and then you'd use Google Translate. And Google Translate is, is – is as much as people knock it, it works pretty well if you kind of understand – sorry, that's my dog. <laughs> if you kind of understand what the topic is and you have, you're have you conversing in the topic, you can translate something. As I did with uh, two different books about Fignon that were published only in French. I, I, this took forever, but I, I, I scanned chapters of them and then ran them through Google Translate and then – kind of, you know, looked over the results and figured out what they were saying. And in some cases, I would then go to somebody who spoke French and say, am I getting this right? You know, um, I did the same thing with uh, Valerie Fignon, uh, her, her the widow, mm-hmm. uh, her, her memoir. I translated huge portions of it using Google Translate and just figured out what she was saying. And then I went back to her and said, did I get this right? And she would say, yes, yes. You know, you translated that correctly.
0: <laughs> wow. Wow, it that's, took
1: forever, but uh, yeah. it, it
0: worked. Good Lord. That's, that is that is an enormous degree of effort. But I mean, it speaks to, you know, I, you know, a book's only as good as the effort that's put into it. And so it speaks to the effort that you made uh, to create a, a really memorable book.
1: Oh, well, thank you. I mean, yeah, some of those days were very long, but it was kind of also a cool process of discovery. And it's amazing what you can do these days with the interwebs and with your computer, you know.
0: <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, it's not like when I was starting out. Yeah. Um, you know, picking up yellow pages and hunting for phone numbers. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So speaking of, of these books, you know, Fignon's book, We Were Young and Carefree, uh, you know, by all uh, indications, it was pretty important as source material for you. Yes. Um Especially considering that Fion Fignon, one of the most important characters in the entire book, uh, other than Lamond himself, is deceased. Yeah. I'm curious. You know, you dug up all this material on him, you know, from from his book, from his wife's book, from, you know, quotes that you found. If he were still alive, are there questions that you'd like to ask him that remain unanswered based on all your research?
1: Oh, certainly, certainly. Um, and let me say, first of all, that a guiding principle I followed in putting the book together was I always tried to use the very, very best material that I had, by which I mean, you know, the very best quote on a certain topic, whether it was Richard Moore's quote or Sam Apt's quote or my own quote. And in many cases, all three of us interviewed the same people, Richard, Samuel Abt, and myself, but Richard might've had the best quote. (laughs) You know, uh, Paul Kimmage might've gotten the best quote. Uh, Sam Abt might've gotten the best quote. And in every case, I was curating for the reader and I wanted to use the best stuff wherever it was from. So I, I, in other words, my ego didn't get in the way ever. So I I often used somebody else's quote because it was simply better than what I'd gotten. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And in the case of Fignon, I told you that I translated, I think, two different, yes, I translated most of two different books about him, and I translated a great number of articles and found a number also in English, and Laurent's own voice usually was the best, and the most trustworthy, the most reliable, so I quote him from his memoir over and over again, because there's simply not a better source uh, to tell his story, and I I did it unapologetically, I mean, that is his voice, screaming out from those pages, Mm -hmm. Um, and yes damn right. I would have loved to ask him, did he in fact hold on to the uh, photographer motorcycle <laughs> You know, <laughs> uh, on that one stage in the 89 tour when both Greg and Andy Hampston told me they saw him hanging on and the race officials were watching and they didn't disqualify him, which apparently they should have done. Yes, I would have liked to ask him what his VO2 max is. Um, I asked Alain Galopin and Alain gave me a, a reasoned estimate of what he thinks uh, Laurent's VO2 max was, but it would be better to ask Laurent, were he alive? Okay. Um, I would have loved to have spent, you know, an entire week with him talking about how he feels now about Greg, how he feels now about the tour. Um, you know, I, 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 there's stuff that he glosses over or doesn't get into a whole lot of depth about in his book, Laurent Fignon. And, you know, some of the darker stuff, uh, the, the sort of this idea that he kept counting to eight over and over again, you know, as he cross, crossing a street, counting his paces or counting the number of words in a book or seconds because he was tortured over this eight second loss. I don't believe that he really asserts that in his in memoir. And I can understand him not saying it, but I would have liked to know more about that, you know, but I, mm-hmm. I, I, I'll, I'll never get to.
0: Yeah. Oh, shame. Uh, what a loss. And I, I, you know, it's one of those things when I picked up your book and was reminded that he died at 50 uh it's like holy cow i i you know i remember he died young um but i guess maybe in part because i have passed that milestone myself and i think about how much of my life i've i've yet to live at least in terms of what i want to do it it filled me with a a fresh a fresh sense of tragedy for the loss of him
1: yeah, um, yeah. yeah me too
0: So when you embarked on this, how much did you know about LeMond and certainly about LeMond's conflict with Armstrong?
1: Um, I knew that Greg had won the three tours. I knew that he'd come back from injury. I had no idea how serious the injury was, how gravely injured he was. And I knew very little about the final years of his career. I I didn't know how much he'd sort of suffered and and this sort of mysterious decline that had happened. And, and then in hindsight, why it happened, I wasn't really tuned into the tour in the early nineties, uh, uh, because there it didn't seem like there was anybody to, to cheer for me, you know?
0: Okay. Sure. Sure. Wow. Uh, well, I mean, I guess things have turned around for you in, in terms of, uh, researching this book,
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I went all the way back to uh, my childhoods, you know, going to Northbrook to the track and watching the track races. And I've been looking up these people who I cheered uh, in the summers, you know, back in the 70s, uh, Eddie Van Guys, Danny Van Hout, um, oh, uh-huh. uh, uh John Vanderveld, who has a rather well-known son. <laughs> a little um, bit, yeah and p- names like Pipenhagen and Kavanaugh. And you guys don't know who these pro- people are probably, but uh, you know, who some of them are, <laughs> but these were the heroes, you know, my, my heroes when I was a kid, uh, yeah. if, if I keep saying to people, if there'd been posters of them, I would have had them on my wall.
0: Very cool. So you were following track racing more than road racing back then.
1: Oh uh, yeah. I, I, I saw some road races. I covered some later as a reporter, but yeah, the weekly ritual was to go to Northbrook and watch the track races. And my father and I, uh did that for years and years and years.
0: Wow. Very cool. Uh, tell me about your dad as a cyclist.
1: Well, um, there's a piece that I wrote for the Chicago Reader that recounts a crazy story. Um, when my father came to America in 1935 with his little brother and his father from Belgium, uh, for some insane reason, they chose to ride their bicycles across the continental United States and they rode from somewhere in new jersey to somewhere in california over i want to say 40 some days that was jacques recollection jacques my my late uncle jacques Mm -hmm. uh they did about 70 miles a day i I don't know how the math works out but it would have been 40 or 50 days maybe 55 and my grandfather being who he was he kept holding press conferences when they would arrive uh, in pittsburgh or in chicago and say, you know, we are on a cross-country cycling trip, you know, and and he'd get them, he'd get the press coverage and, and the little boys would pose. And the point of the article that I wrote for the Chicago Reader is that I'm pretty sure that at that time they were the youngest people to make that, that trip. Wow. Uh, You know, since then, I think maybe some kids have done it, but not in the thirties, not in the twenties. Yeah. So after that, after that, My father became a very serious amateur cyclist. Um, He won a a number of races. He told me he briefly held the national amateur record for the distance of 10,000 meters. And I don't know if that would have been on a track maybe or on a road, but he he, he remembered that. And he was, you know, he was a very gifted cyclist. He finally went into a sort of a a big boy job (laughs) And uh, became a, a sort of a, an urban scientist, a demographer, and stopped racing. Uh, and he he died in 2004 as a, a well-known urban urbanologist in Chicago. And very few people knew that he'd ever been a racer.
0: Wow. Well, I'm I'm sorry he's no longer with us. Uh, sounds like a f- truly fascinating guy, uh, and I can oh. see where you get your love for it from. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you're going to need to cough up a link for us because I want to link that. Uh, link to that story for our readers.
1: Oh, uh, yeah, sure thing. I'll send it to you uh, when we're done with our interview.
0: Okay. So now speaking of tours, you're doing a one of your own (laughs) uh, a tour for this book. I'm curious. uh, Now you're going to be at Copperfields uh, here in Santa Rosa pretty soon. So I'll come out and see you there. But, you know, with stuff like this, sometimes people do an actual reading from it. Sometimes they give a talk. Um, What's what's this evening look like?
1: Right. Um, right. We're leaving tomorrow, uh, going, flying to Sacramento, I believe. And then I'll be in Reno, which is where Greg Lamont's father and sisters live on the fifth. And from there to, uh, Grass Valley, which is basically Nevada city, I believe on the sixth. Yep. The the bicycling hall of fame on the seventh, which is an important day on the calendar. Uh, I think that's the first day of the tour. And then from there to Campbell, which is outside San Jose, uh, Santa Rosa on the ninth, Berkeley on the (laughs) 10th, Danville, California on the 11th, uh, Irvine, the Irvine ranch water district community room on the 12th. Oh, that
0: must be the orange County wheelman.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then last, but by no means least, um, Riverside, the, uh, the Riverside bicycle club on the 14th and then back home, to rest and recuperate for a third leg of the tour that'll take me out to the, uh, Spokane, Tacoma, uh, Portland area.
0: Very cool. And so are you giving readings or are you doing a talk? How, how does, how do you conduct these evenings?
1: Well, I don't like reading. I don't like, re- I, mean, I like to read. I mean, I don't like doing readings. I don't like reading from books. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just find that puts people to sleep. So what I do, and, and this has been pretty consistent is I just talk through a lot of what you and I have talked about. I, I talk about, I try to explain cause it's, it, it bears explaining why I'm interested in this stuff. You know, who am I? Why am I writing a book about bicycling? You know, sure. I'm not a cycling writer. So what am I doing? Um, so the, all of what you just heard about my father and myself and my childhood, I, all of that and my, my, my worship of first Fignon and then LeMond when I was a kid, you know, I loved Fignon first, I think before I loved Greg. Hmm. Um, yeah, well, eighty three, right? Uh, I don't think Greg was even in the tour that year. True. Um, yeah, uh, I didn't get the headband, but I was into him. <laughs> um, and, and then I and then I, I walk the, the 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 audience through Greg's career and Fignon's career. Um, it gets a little dicey in the eighties because you have three characters: you have Greg, Laurent, and Bernard Bernardino, the sort of three-headed Hydra or whatever. Uh, the Renault team, and they're all the leaders, you know, and then, they, and then they, they fight, you know, two against one, one against one, two against one for the next three, four years. And then I just take the, I, I take the sort of the, the audience through, then Greg getting injured, Greg getting better, the 89 tour, and then yada, yada. I basically talk my way through the book, but I also talk my way through my own life in explaining why I wrote the book.
0: Oh, fascinating. I look forward to, well, finishing the book. I'm almost there. Not quite. And uh, I look forward to hearing you talk about it soon. We will uh, include a link to the calendar of your stops uh, from our show notes.
1: Oh, awesome. That'd be great.
0: Uh, Daniel, this has been absolutely fantastic. I can't wait to attend the talk next week uh, and have a chance to actually meet you in person. Maybe I can buy you a beer. Um, <laughs> But, That'd be great. Yeah, uh, thank you so much for the time,
1: dude. Oh, I I, I cannot thank you enough because I, I just want people to find out about this story and 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 the book and and to to get it if they if they're interested. And you know, so much of the struggle when you've written a book is just to simply make people aware of it, and you've helped <laughs> yeah. me immeasurably in that quest.
0: Oh, you're welcome. You know, I, I think that this is one of those occasions where we can say, okay, here we go. This is the definitive account.
1: I I, I hope you're right. I I, I definitely poured my heart and soul into it. And Greg and Kathy were enormously helpful and they're the greatest couple. And I think that just the story itself, is just a damned good story. Leaving aside whether I did a good job telling it, I think I did. But the story is just so powerful and it's just a wonderful story.
0: Amen. Thanks. Thank you, sir. Thanks to my guest, Daniel DeVizet, for joining me on The Poll. To learn more about his work, you can visit him at danieldevise.com. You know, he's more of a cycling insider than he usually lets on. But even he struggles with pronunciation at times.
1: I think we should say it the way Bob Roll says it. the Tour de France.
0: That's it for this episode of The Poll. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I hope you'll leave the show a good review on iTunes or wherever you get your media. Finally, if you're not already listening to our reboot of the Pace Line podcast with my co-host Celine Yeager, a.k.a. The Fit Chick, I encourage you to give us a listen. Until next week, have a great ride.